and welcome to The Unschooled Space, the podcast that's here to help parents embrace their personal journey into unschooling with all the joy and challenges it's likely to bring. Each episode, I look at different aspects of unschooling and talk with other parents about their experiences. This is episode 42, and I'm your host, Esther Jones. Don't forget to check out my website, esther-jones.com, for all things de-schooling and mindful parenting, or to join my next Thriving Beyond School online workshop. So today, my guest is Naomi Fisher, who I'm delighted to have back for a second conversation. Naomi is a clinical psychologist, mother of two children who are at a self-directed learning centre, and author of the book Changing Our Minds, which is about the importance of choice, autonomy, and self-direction in education. She also has a new book coming out in June entitled A Different Way to Learn. So today, among many things, we talk about how children naturally learn and develop and why our education system tends to undermine these natural processes and how a competitive environment focused on content and exams quashes our children's innate curiosity and motivation. Naomi also shares her thoughts on how parents can best accompany a child who's come out of mainstream school after a difficult time. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi Naomi, thank you so much for your time today. Great to have you here. Hi Esther, it's great to be here. Great, well maybe I could just invite you to tell people a little bit about yourself and how you came to be working and living in the world of self-directed education. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I have two children who are now 14 and 11 and they have never been to conventional school. And really what started it all off for me was I had a background in uh, developmental psychology. So I had a PhD in developmental psychology and autism before I did my um, clinical training. And a lot of that was about how children learnt. And it was all about really how children learnt through play and developmentally and all that kind of thing. And then as my son, who's my older child, as he approached school age, I became increasingly concerned that what was going to happen to him at school wasn't in line with everything that I knew about child development. And he was young in his year, his July birthday, so he would have been going into school just four. Um, and I could see that he was at a stage in his life where he just wanted to play. He was very, very active. He was not interested in reading or phonics or anything like that at all. And I went to the kind of introduction. We had a place at the primary school down on our road, actually. It was excellent Ofsted rated um, at the end of our road. And I went along to the meeting, like probably about this time. When would it have been? Like 11, when he was just, he was three still at the time that I went to the meeting. He had, he had his fourth birthday. And they presented us with a list of words that they wanted us to teach them over the summer break. And it was words like the, but, if, of. And I was like, this is completely learning taken out of context here. You know, I've everything we've done up to this point has been my child learning through things that they found meaningful and learning through things that had purpose for them. And now suddenly I was being expected to put them into this environment where it was about you need to learn these things because an adult says so. And because an adult says that these are important. And firstly, I thought, my goodness, I could spend my whole summer stressing about him not wanting to recognize these words, but also how completely pointless learning these words will be for him. Because I don't know that he's even aware these words really exist. You know, he just talk, you talk, you don't you don't notice these little joining words. and. 
and I just thought we could do I could do a lot of damage here we could do a lot of damage with him going in and learning I think I thought he could learn really quickly that he was no good at reading for example because he just wasn't interested and I'd already actually had a bit of experience when he went to preschool because he did go to preschool like it was a preschool playgroup he went about three mornings a week and it didn't take long of him going to preschool for him to start telling me that he was rubbish at drawing and you know, he he had serious fine motor skills, difficulties at that age. Um, and his drawing was a long way behind some other kids of his age. And I could see that there were these girls, mostly, who were quite a bit older because he was at the young end of his year group. And they were drawing these really quite sophisticated pictures. And he was still doing stick men, effectively. And he stopped drawing. And I was like, I could just see this happening again and again and again. I'm no good at reading. I'm no good at this. I'm no good at this. And I know from my work as a clinical psychologist that these beliefs that you form early in childhood are really hard to shift. You know, they they form something sort of fundamental about who you are. And no matter how much I at home might be saying, oh, you know, you're right at drawing. He, he can look around. He can see that all the other children can draw much better than him. And then you go into the school environment, which is all about comparisons. It's all the time comparing children against each other. And I just thought, we'll just skip this. We'll just won't do it. Uh, which actually wasn't an easy decision at all. I had to give up a job which I loved and I was at home with them full-time. Well, I was at home with them and like many home-ed mother mothers, I was at home with them full-time and then I worked in the evenings and at the weekends because that was the only way I could keep it going. And then I think at the time, like many people, I had this idea, oh, they'll get to seven or so. So he's got a younger sister as well. She also didn't go to school. Um, I had this idea that they'll get to about seven and, you know, maybe that'll be the, the time when they'll be ready to go to school. And actually what happened is that as they didn't go to school, the gap between what they were doing and what schooled children were doing just got bigger and bigger rather than smaller and smaller. So I had expected that by seven, they might be ready to sit down and start doing some more formal learning. Absolutely no. We were still definitely deep into play and spending your time running around and getting muddy and playing with slime and all that sort of thing. And I just thought, okay, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and then the more I, the more I saw them, and the more I watched their learning with this kind of really close up view of what how they were learning, the more I thought, wow. This is really, there's lots of psychological theories that I'd already learned about playing out here. But also I thought a lot of what I've always thought about child development, what I was trained in in child development is actually child development in the context of school. And school is like this invisible intervention into children's lives, but it's a massive number of hours. You know, they're there for like 30 hours a week mm. for, for 12 years. <laughs> it's this enormous intervention, but we behave as if it isn't developmentally making a difference to them. And I think that's one of the things yeah. that really made me want to write about it, just how different we see, how differently we see children developing when they develop out of school. Yeah. So that's not a short answer, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beautiful quote by Carol Black about... Studying whales in an aquarium. And that's the same as watching children. If you watch them at school, it's like watching wild animals in a zoo or, yeah, dolphins in an aquarium. Or yeah, whatever. it is like that. Absolutely. Exactly. It's one particular context which is going to result in one particular set of behaviours, which is going to affect how they grow and develop. Absolutely. So where are your children now then? So now they are at the Self-Managed Learning College in, well, near us in Portslade, which is a part-time learning community. They go there in the mornings. Yeah. So because we've talked a lot about this, this um, going back to what you were saying about competition, I actually read something of yours this morning, which was describing... I think it was describing a Halloween parade. Yeah. 
parade yeah and that idea so everyone's having fun they're getting ready to they're getting dressed up and their homemade outfits and then suddenly school decides to introduce the idea of a prize for the best outfit yeah and suddenly this is that undercurrent of sort of unease that happens mm. when everything is suddenly made competitive absolutely it's almost bringing that adult view to what this should look like and and how that can really corrode yes um the experience for children right? I know it's it, I, I started noticing that when my son was very small actually and we would go along to these baby singing group at the end they would give them all a sticker and I remember at the time I was like why are you giving them a sticker we have only come here because this is fun for them <laughs> there is no other reason yeah. why we have come to do this you know this is it if it stops being fun we'll stop coming they're only one and a half <laughs> and yet we're behaving as if they need to be rewarded for it and I think we mm. often have this idea with children that they need to be rewarded or they need to be motivated by prizes. And it just isn't the case. If you watch young children, my, my son's actually one of the best examples I have to think about is he was really into treasure hunts when he was about three, three or four. He just loved treasure hunts. We spent a lot of our time doing treasure hunts, but he didn't care about the treasure at all. Like it was mm. all about hunting stuff. He liked, you know, he liked me to hide things and he liked to find them, but he didn't care what it was. And he didn't, he was completely happy for you to hide the same thing again and again and again, because it was all about process for him. He was loving, right. you know, it's process, not outcome. And I think young children are in this very process driven stage of learning. That's what play is really, isn't it? You're doing it because it's fun. You're doing it because you are exploring and experimenting. You don't really mind about the product or the outcome. And then along come adults and they start saying, oh, but you've got to finish that or you've got to make a have it, don't you know, can't you make it nicer? Or we go to judge all of your outcomes. And they bring in this adult perspective at a time in childhood when we just don't need to. We absolutely don't need to. And I think we don't we don't really acknowledge enough the long term implications of that, that what that is doing to children and also how much we are kind of training children that what matters is outcome rather than doing something and I think with learning in particular that is a really a bad idea because once once you become focused on outcome you start doing things like choosing the easiest option or with something like the Halloween parade you start getting your mum to do it for you or you start mm. you know you start finding ways around it because the point is the prize Another example I sometimes talk about is when my son was young, we were given this um, free trial, some computer program, which was about maths. And I thought he might quite like it because he liked doing maths. He liked adding things up and that kind of thing. So we've tried out this free trial and it would be, you know, like four plus three, you put in the number and then bing, and it would give you a star. And very quickly, he worked out that you did a certain number of maths problems. And at the end, you would get a thing that went, and it would give you how many stars. And in fact, I would even get sent an email from the computer program saying, mm -hmm. you know, your son has just got three stars for his such and such. Well done. <laughs> Keep going. That kind of thing. <laughs> and the first time he did it, he only got two stars out of three. And we realized that in order to get three stars, you had to get 100% of them right. So he immediately came running to me and said, mommy, I need you to do maths because I need to get three stars. And I was like, that is an entirely logical solution to this problem. The, yeah. the, 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 the computer program has made it about getting the stars rather than doing the maths, which I knew he enjoyed because he loves he loves numbers and he loves adding things up. So of course it makes more sense to bring someone in who's going to get you the results. So <laughs> it's so sad though, because it's taking away that joy of finding our own path 
And I guess it's yeah. because we don't trust that a child has that desire to learn. We don't think they want to do maths. Yeah, and they maybe don't want to yeah. do it in a certain way. I've probably said, given this example before on the podcast, but my son, who's now 17, when he was about 16, so he was doing Mandarin with a tutor, which he chose to do. They have a tutor nearby, she, a Chinese woman he'd go to each week. And one day she said, uh, and he was very motivated to learn Mandarin, he has been for quite a while, and she said... Um, oh, why don't you do a KS2 exam? And uh, that would give you something to work for, would give you a reason. Yeah. And he said, what's a reason? Oh, yeah. I want to learn Mandarin. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I want to learn how to speak Chinese, yes. <laughs> oh, he, he, the idea that that felt like such a silly little thing to him because he had this huge reason. Yes, to, and it's yeah. a real reason. The exams are like made up reasons really, aren't they? Yeah, completely. You know, and I think that it just underestimates this huge capacity of natural learning and what learning is when it is intrinsically motivated. And it's like a kind of an, a journey of exploration, isn't it, really, what learning is? Absolutely. It can go in all sorts of different directions. And I find it weird that we do this to school-aged children because we we know, really, that young children are motivated to learn without yeah. us having to motivate them. And we also know, actually, for most of us, know that adults, most adults are quite motivated yeah. to learn and will do it without being made to do it because that's what we're doing. You know, I mean, you're doing this podcast. You've learned all about how to how to do yeah. podcasts. It's not because anybody's said, right, there's a podcast in GCSE, Esther. Yeah. And, <laughs> and for it, you will need to produce this podcast and then it will be marked and you'll get a grade. You know, they don't, you don't need that because you're motivated. So why do we think that children and children must be made to do things through this system of rewards or punishment. Right. And I think the, the reasons thing is a good example, because, of course, one of the, I think, very unfortunate things that happens to young people in our schools is that as you get older, everything you do is for these exams. Mm. So after the age of about 12 or 13, you only do things at school that you're going to be examined in. So everything you do is a GCSE yeah. or an A-level. And therefore, we've completely cut off the possibility of doing learning where you're actually you might not be that good at it. You know, you're only like I I've talked about this before, but I chose to do music GCSE because I knew I would get an A yeah. and I didn't really want to do music GCSE. I didn't think I would learn very much. In fact, I did the same with French. I chose to do French GCSE because I knew I would get an A. And that was the only reason. Mm. I didn't think I would learn any French doing it. And I didn't. And I didn't think I'd learn anything about music doing it. Because you're, the point of it becomes, what will I get best? What will I do best at? Rather than, what will I learn most about? What will I find interesting? And I think that's a terrible thing to do to our teenagers. We've, particularly, we've got that period in there from 13 right through to 18, where everything they do is examined, tested. They have to show their progress all the time. Yeah, And I just think it's really counterproductive for learning yeah it's also such a powerful age for self-discovery mm. for um forming new opinions for challenging things and um yeah I think we really severely um sort of cut them off really cut them off from themselves as well I'm always struck by how you know when there's an adult telling you what to do all the time and particularly as you're oh. saying and this in this exam kind of process how can you kind of reach into what you love and what what you really want or what your gifts yeah. are for the world? You yes. Know? No, you, you can't, can you? Because actually it doesn't matter. And that's what I think a lot, unfortunately, of the school process is. It's kind of telling children it doesn't matter what you really enjoy or what you're interested in because this is what we're going to do. 
And then we see these teenagers, and I see lots of these teenagers, who have no idea what they're interested in, who have no idea what they want to do. And that's not a surprise to me, because they've spent their whole childhood being told, yes, okay, we know you're really interested in Pokemon, but actually it's much more important that you learn about the ancient Egyptians. We know you're interested in this, but we don't care effectively. Yeah. So we're trying, we're effectively interfering with their sense of motivation all the time. We're interfering with what they find interesting. And what we're doing is overlaying it with a layer of what will you do well at? What mm. can you do well at? How could you get your best grades at GCSE? And I, I remember that as I don't know if you remember that, but certainly at school, I remember having that sense when I was even just choosing my GCSEs. I remember them saying, you know, what do you, f-? and I, I had actually no idea what I found interesting. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. Because it was, it was really about whether the teacher was nice or not. That it was. was it. <laughs> I thought that I was really bad at science mm-hmm. and that was compounded by a first session in a chemistry GCSE group mm-hmm. where I knew I wasn't going to get very far. So I changed immediately to history. <laughs> Oh, really? And then it's yeah. taken me to have children who are interested in anything that comes their way for me to go, mm, okay, maybe science yeah. isn't a, a no-go area. And they reintroduced it to me yeah. thanks to yeah. their non-schooled minds. But to me, it was like, I'm bad at that. There's no point whatsoever. Yes. No point. Yes, there's no point. Absolutely. There is no point in doing it because I'm no good at it, which is such it serves the human race so badly. I think particularly when we're doing that with children, because children are inherently usually not as good at things as adults. So if we're saying to children all the time, well, you're not, you know, you're not good enough at that. Don't do it then we, we, we're stunting them. We're cutting yeah. off so many things for them. And I think particularly for children who maybe are developmentally, well, we know that children who are at the younger end of their year group, they do less well at everything. You know, the, the, the summer-born boys do much less well at school than the autumn-born girls. Um, and that follows all the way through to GCSE. So I think it's a particular problem when you come to developmental differences. If you're saying to children and young people, you're not very, you know, if they are, or if they're getting that message, of course, no one says this explicitly usually, but they get the message. It's only worth doing things if I'm good at them. And then they see that they're not so good at things because they're developmentally, they're immature and they don't even know that necessarily. It doesn't, it doesn't clock with them that the reason maybe they're not so good at drawing is because actually they were born in August. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah I was an August baby oh yeah yeah I spent several years just feeling completely overwhelmed I I remember the sense of overwhelm yeah yeah because everything happened a bit too early for you absolutely yeah so of course this is also to do with having agency over your own life which is such a huge thing for any for a human being isn't it like we need to know that we've got some sense of control over what happens to us, what we're doing, and to have yeah. no agency over, over what you do most of your day. And for some children, that's extremely mm. difficult. I think for all children, it's um, hard, but some simply cannot cope with that. No, and I always talk about those children as the clear-sighted children who are saying, hang on a minute, <laughs> this is not right. It should not be. They're like the canary, ma- the canaries in the mine, the canaries, holding up yeah. the flags for everybody else, saying this is not good. It should not be like this. But of course, what happens is they get labelled as disruptive or as badly behaved or as oppositional, all sorts of things. Um, but actually, yes, it's children who kind of see through and say, hang on a minute, what? why? Why are you doing this to me? Because it's odd again that 
as adults and as older teenagers, there's a lot of complaining about young people not having a sense of agency or being passive. You know, like when the people go into the workplace, uh, say, you know, they don't they don't have any kind of. I remember being like this actually when I got my first jobs. It's like I just sort of waited to be told what to do. Mm. I was worried about asking people. I did these tamping admin jobs when I when I um, when I left school. And I remember finding it really, really nerve wracking to just go and ask the person who I was working for, what am I meant to be doing? Mm. Because I was worried that I was meant to know and I was worried that I'd be getting it wrong. (laughs) So, and that passivity is trained into you at school because you you often do get told if you say, what am I meant to be doing? It is often, well, you should have been listening earlier. Why didn't you get it? You know, and there is a kind of training until you do what you're told and your role is not to take initiative. And then you get into the workplace and actually being able to take initiative is fundamental. It's a really important and young children are really good at taking initiative, usually way out of kilter with their self, with their skills. You know, you see young children full of self-confidence, really quite low in actual capacity, capability, and their parents running behind as they yeah. do things like, you know, climb trees and walk walls and <laughs> do set up big projects for themselves. And we take that away from them. And then we get to the end and we're like, well, why don't they have any initiative? Where is there? Where's their, you know, why are they so passive? It's like, well, that's because they were trained to be like that for 12 years. Yeah, that that leads us a little bit to what we were talking about just before we started recording, Naomi, which is this idea that um, you're going to probably put this into much better words than me. This idea that when we want our children to be a certain way, mm-hmm. we sort of impose things on them so that they learn that skill so that then they internalize it but of course that's not how it works do you want to just say a little few words about that yes I think it's really interesting yeah so this so this was this example where I get asked a lot when I say things like I think we should give children choices for example so if I say I think we should be we should allow our children to choose not to come to not necessarily to come to things with us you know if we we give them a suggestion like let's would you like to go to the park and they say no then my approach would definitely be then don't say oh that's a shame are you sure or you know oh that I was really looking forward to going to the park <laughs> all the things that are quite normal parenting things to say where we can yeah I was gonna say hands hands up those who are guilty <laughs> we all do this it's like oh, I don't know where we learn it but it's like a, there's this parenting yeah, atmosphere where we all learn to do this kind of thing mm. <laughs> which puts extra pressure on our children and it also tells them this wasn't a real choice yeah. So a lot of questions that we ask children aren't real choices. You know, would you like to do this? Actually, I'm not going to let you say no. Would you like to go to this? But, you know, would you like to go and visit granny? There's not a no option there, really, because we are going to go <laughs> visit granny. <laughs> so, so if you say no, I'm going to start persuading you that actually it's a good thing to visit granny. So we kind of take away children's choice in quite a subtle way. Yeah. And then and then when I talk about this, so I talk about, so, so the no demand way would be either uh, we could go to the park. If it's a real choice, we could go to the park or we could not go to the park. What would you like to do? So that's a kind of more no demand option yeah. rather than we go. would you like to go to the park? But when it's something like granny, if there's actually not an option of saying no, because if actually your child, the child is young enough that they've got to come and you're going to go and visit granny, then I think it's good to be clear that actually there isn't a choice about this. Because, yeah. You know, rather than pretending it's a choice, because often as parents, we pretend we make up these fake choices. Would you like to go and see granny? No, I wouldn't. Oh, but Granny would really like to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're in this kind of position. And actually, I think it's it's more straightforward to be saying, 
we're going to go and see granny i know that's difficult sometimes but we need to do it because we need to see granny how can i make it easier for you so that you're kind of shifted the discussion to something different yeah um and i kind of feel like i've kind of drifted off what our initial thing yeah was. no that that does fit but it was about um so in fact you could take that same example really about and then saying yes but we need to get them used to doing things they don't like to do they have to come to the park to get used yes to exactly we need to get them used to doing and also taking account of other people so you know maybe granny wants to yeah. see you and so one of the things I would be saying when I'm saying low demand parenting is I wouldn't then be saying oh but granny's really missing you she'd really love to see you I wouldn't be mm. putting that pressure on so then people say but children need to learn that kind of thing they need to learn to do things they don't want to do that's an often one but also they need to learn to take considerate to consider other people and what I say then is well there's something really different between considering other people and being made to do something for other people because actually if I force you to go and visit granny we're hoping that you might be learning to think oh granny wants to see me I you know it'd be nice for me to go and see her but actually that isn't necessarily what children are learning at all they may simply be learning I'm being forced to do this against my will and I didn't really have a choice about it at all and there's a whole set of anger and resentment there which isn't the same as the kind of oh yes it would be good to see granny well, it's more likely to cause aversion to that actually in the future yes that that's true be a more natural <laughs> yes <laughs> don't make me don't make me do it yeah so that idea of instilling a value even in your child Yes, you can't force it. It happens with so many things, you know, like children got to learn a work ethic, so we must force them to go to school every day. That isn't how one develops a work ethic by being forced to do something, because that has to come from inside. And we confuse this with children all the time. We confuse something that you do by your own volition. We we see the outside. So, you know, maybe I choose to eat a healthy diet, for example. I do that for myself because I want to do it. So then we think if we force our children to eat a healthy diet, that's the same thing, that we're doing the same thing for them and we want them to eat a healthy diet, so therefore we should force them to do it. But actually, that that, that bit of the forcing really, really matters because yeah. being forced to eat a healthy diet and choosing to eat a healthy diet are two fundamentally different things which lead to a different way of feeling about what you're eating and what you're doing. And I think the only way that we can really... And I think this, this applies absolutely to learning, doesn't it? The difference between choosing to learn something and being forced to learn something is really fundamental, but it can look the same from the outside. So a young person who's choosing to study physics, for example, might actually look the same as a young person who's being forced to study physics, because they might be sitting in the same classroom. But the way that they feel about it and the way they relate to the physics is going to be entirely different. And in the long term, the one who wants to be doing the physics and is choosing to do the physics is more likely to carry on doing physics than the one who thinks I'm here because I've, I've got to do it. <laughs> I haven't got any choice. <laughs> and I think that I think that's at the heart of self-directed education, really. This yeah. idea that choice and who is in control really, really matters. And if we ignore that, it's at our peril, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel that this piece is actually really central to how mainstream parenting works almost, isn't it? It's almost like forcing it in or, mm -hmm. or coercing it in quite gently. Not that it doesn't necessarily look like force. Yes, pushing it, pressuring it in of subtle pressure, shaming, emotional pressure, all of the 
quickly using rewards and approval always let's pressure you to do what I think you should be doing but we're always undermining their connection to themselves yes it's really the only place we can really hope that our children get again it's that process isn't it holding a child in their process of knowing themselves and finding what matters to them who matters them yes um and then of course i think a huge part of this is modeling can i model i'll model Mm -hmm. compassion self-compassion can i model um doing things i love to do like can i be that person rather than Mm -hmm. demanding that my child is and make you be that person yes i think it's partly to do with how different young children are and how much that scares adults because i think that younger children and I actually think this this time my my experience of observing self-directed children and of talking to the parents of self-directed children which I have done quite a lot is that this period of life where children they're about discovery and play they're learning through being in the moment so I think I think there are two main phases of learning in childhood this from my observations but also from the literature so in early childhood children are in a discovery phase of learning which means really that they're moved, they're in the moment, they're doing things because they love to do it. They are, you know, splashing in water because they just love to splash in water. They're building things with Lego because they love to build things with Lego. And they are living in that in the process. They're not focused on outcome. They don't care too much. In fact, <laughs> for example, if they're splashing in water, they're not thinking about, and then I'm going to have wet clothes at the end of it. You know, there's all kinds of outcome that they're, they're just like, this is so fun. Oh, damn, now it's not. And I'm drenched and I don't have any clothes. <laughs> and it's up to their parents to be thinking about that kind of thing for them because they're just not capable of doing it yet. And that's a developmental thing. You know, brains mature enormously in adolescence and younger children just, just they're, they're in the moment. It's fantastic. But they are a different kind of learner. And actually, it's not something you can go back and do as an adult. You know, so that, like, I'm sure many parents will have had the experience of having to play, probably being forced to play with your young child, doing hours of imaginative play or, oh, my goodness, and how hard it is as an adult. And I remember... I remember thinking when I was with my children and they were making me do imaginative play. It's like, but it's like <laughs> the, the kind of straight jacket, right? Come on, Bobby, you're not paying attention. I'd be like, and I was like, this is so funny that for them, this is just immersive joy. They love it completely in play. Me, I'm I acting, know. playing, basically. Oh, I remember that so clearly. Yeah, it's quite painful as well. And I would feel quite lacking. Oh, my goodness, it's such hard work. <laughs> yes. Yes, you and you're kind of, and I would I was so aware yeah. that I wasn't really playing. I was pretending yeah. I was playing at playing. I was pretending to play because it was important for them. Yeah. But it was such hard work. <laughs> and I think that's mm. because our brains have changed. You know, that is no longer our way of just being right. in the world. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's gonna be very reassuring words there for everybody out there. <laughs> well, I think because my observation of self of self-directed children is that that time goes on for a lot longer than schools allow it to. So schools very quickly try to shift children on to a later stage of learning, which is more about mastery learning. So it's about we need to practice this skill so you learn how to do X. We're going to practice reading so you become a reader. We're going to practice math so you're able to do this. We're going to practice your handwriting so you can do this. They do that to children before the children developmentally would have made that shift themselves. Right, yeah. And actually... One of the things that worried me when I when I was looking at my children um, when I was starting out was 
are they ever going to get to the stage where they will think things like, I want to improve my maths? In fact, handwriting is a particular thing. So my son, who really struggled with drawing, his handwriting was very, very basic for a long time. And I did worry about it because I was like, you know, I was forced to do handwriting at school. I'm sure everybody was made to do handwriting at school. Um, if he's never made to do handwriting, is he ever going to decide that handwriting is important? And what will happen if he doesn't? Like what happens if we get to the point where he says, I want to go to university, but the ha his handwriting looks like the handwriting of a three or four year old. And everybody said, it'll develop, it'll develop, it'll get better, you know, it'll improve. And it didn't. And my daughter, I had the opposite experience. She draws, she doesn't really like writing, but she draws all the time. And I could see that her handwriting was getting better, you know, without her having to practice it because she was practicing drawing effectively all the time. Um, and then when my son was about 13, he decided he wanted to do a GCSE. And I was talking to him about it. And I said, well, the thing is, we'd have to find, you'd have to get a scribe or we'd have to find some way of of the writing happening for you because you wouldn't be able to write a GCSE at the moment. And he said, before we look into doing that, so I was like, we'd have to get an assessment for dyspraxia or, you know, there's all kinds of things we could do to help you. And he said, before I do that, I want to see if I can improve my handwriting. Okay, fine. So he talked to someone at SML who I think gave him a book about it and suggested he did it for 20 minutes a day. And he did it for 20 minutes a day without any reference to me. In fact, any reference to me at all. And and the, the first I knew of it was, I think it was Christmas. And he signed a card. He signed a Christmas card and he signed it in this amazing loopy cursive. And I was like, oh, <laughs> where's that come from? <laughs> and then my daughter ran upstairs Brilliant. and got the birthday card that he had signed for, for her six months earlier. Her birthday is in June. And in June, his writing looked like a child in reception. Wow. And by December, writing loopy cursive. Amazing. He, but he was at this point, he was 13. And I think there's a big change that goes to happen. I see it happening in children mm. around 9, 10, 11, as they start to get towards puberty. Their brains yeah. start to mature and they start to approach learning in a different way. And I think it was a big surprise to me watching my children and other children that that just happened. Because I think school assumes that you have to make that happen. You have to mm. make children start practicing because otherwise they wouldn't do that. Why would they do it? But actually, I see children getting, I see self-directed children going into adolescence and it's like something switches on and they're like, oh, I'd like to be able to do that. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to start practicing it. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yeah, because when the imaginative play, certainly here, and they were all three um, engaged in lots of imaginative play until at least they were nine or ten. Yes, that's completely typical. That's yeah. what I hear from parents, nine or ten. And then and the school parents are like, nine or ten? It's completely stopped. Mm. You know, if you talk to a school child of that age, they'll say things like, oh, I'm too old to play or I don't play anymore. You know, that's for babies. And yet you talk to home ed kids and at nine or ten, that's still what they do all day. Yeah, but that's interesting, isn't it? And then as they're approaching puberty, there's a sense of who am I going to be in the world, I think, perhaps, or... Hmm. what avenues are out there yeah so I think there's a there's a neurological maturation that starts and part of that is being able to think about the future in a different way yeah. so part of it is being able yeah. to think what am I actually going to do whereas younger children if they think about the future it's all about the realm of train drivers and you know dinosaurs right. or 
it's interesting how then you get the kind of the reaching out and oh I think I would quite like to do that or I might do this to that and then it's a whole Mm -hmm. different thing to hold I think when you're at home with them absolutely and a different set of opportunities that you're looking for yeah yeah and a different kind of I think for the parent as they're getting older there's this whole kind of like right how do I make that happen or (laughs) or the falling right into right well you're gonna need these exams you want to be a doctor and they're like I'm 18 I'm just thinking about it (laughs) yes but it's a whole other place isn't it which which is interesting it's Mm. super interesting to hold Mm. it because again you're always seeing your own your own stuff aren't you in yes if you can if you can um, observe yeah in fact maybe we talk a little bit about the parent in all of this what advice you give to Mm -hmm. a parent so particularly if the child has come out of school because it hasn't been a great experience for them so everyone's decided that actually perhaps it's better to not go to school what can the parent do to shift because we've most of us were schooled so to hold an un, a child who's not in the education system really in a different way that requires yeah. a lot of change of your, in yourself doesn't it it does and it requires time mm-hmm. and I think and I think it, it depends on the child's age because I think the anxieties are different at different ages and I do think that usually the younger the child the easier it is to bring them out And I think that's for a few reasons. One of them is that their desire to play has usually not been quashed so much and they're quite ready to start doing that again. Um, But the other is that the anxieties of adults are less, usually less entrenched for younger children. So when I talk to parents who are, who's 13 or 14 or 15 year olds are coming out of school, they're really anxious about GCSEs usually because it's that they have this really strong feeling that if you everybody has a strong feeling in the education system that if you don't get those GCSEs your future may be blighted forever I personally think it's a really destructive thing and we shouldn't be repeating it at all I think it's really Mm. sad that schools repeat this all the time because the system the GCSE system is set up so that a third of young people will not get good GCSEs and yet we're telling them we're putting them through the education system saying to them this is the most important thing that will happen you know where we're knowing that a third of them are not going to get that and I think that's just such a a travesty of responsibility really I just just clarify for people listening that's because of course everyone is measured according to their cohort of that year correct that's right well actually it's more than that they they actually compare them to previous years and they benchmark it so what they do is they put all the grades in a row and then they compare to previous years so that it doesn't vary that much so the percentage who gets a certain grade will stay more or less the same so so that means that you can't sub it's it's meant they talk about it as benchmarking the exam so the idea is that if you had a really easy exam one year suddenly everybody might get good grades and that would be unfair and so what you do is you benchmark it instead against the previous years so that means that no matter how much as a cohort as a whole group no matter how much they all work about a third of them are always going to get the failing grades because it's set up like that that's a harsh thing it's a really harsh thing and also it's a harsh thing because most young people don't know that they don't tell young people that no I don't think most parents realize no. that either that we can talk about you know everyone being excellent and uh, yeah. every chance 
exactly we cannot every child cannot succeed at GCSE they cannot all be the successes and I think that's a massive challenge for our education system if that is the case what are we going to do about all these other young people because we cannot just carry on pretending that if they just worked a bit harder they'd all do better so even when one school is saying you know they're getting great exam results they will be getting that at the expense of another school yeah. <laughs> effectively so it's like, oh gosh, why? You know, what a what a way to organise education to have this failure at sixteen, which we don't need to do. You know, most other countries, other countries that were not British colonies, do not tend to have exams at sixteen. Like, if you go to Europe, most of them will have an end of school exam at eighteen or nineteen, which is the university entrance level, but they won't have these standardised formal. Exactly. They'll have end of year exams, that kind of thing. They will have exams, but they don't have these national exams used as a kind of benchmark at 16. So we are sorting out our children earlier than other countries. And that is going to have a negative effect, particularly on those who have any kind of developmental difference or any kind of or just those who are less mature. So so what would you say to a parent then who's, again, 13, 14 year old yeah. and, and uh, just sort of like to try and let go of that? So the one the thing that I really? find helpful often is to read about the teenage brain and how it develops and yeah. the knowledge that adolescence is this period of intense brain development that goes on to the age of 25 at least mm -hmm. and that loads of stuff is changing in that time and the things like GCSEs that we have are simply arbitrary standards by society they are not there's no gold thing that says that gold standard that says that at 16 you must all do these national exams and actually, there are many ways to get around into a future which don't necessarily have to involve going through the standard process. And you certainly don't need to be doing nine GCSEs. You know, that that just isn't essential. And if you're thinking, I would be thinking first, the first task, if you're a young person comes out of school, is to reestablish their sense of themselves, really. Because often, if, particularly if they've had a bad time, that's is going to have been squashed. And so what you're doing is I talk about it as establishing the comfort zone. You basically bring them back into their comfort zone. You're going to focus on relationships because often if you've been, if you're a parent of a young person who has not been happy at school, you will almost certainly have been pulled into that by the school. And the school will have asked you to do things like pressure them to go in, monitor things. And so pulling yourself out of that relationship with the school where you're no longer the representative of a school and instead you're re relating directly to your child is really important. Safety is really important. So that's where it comes into things like the child's ability to say no to stuff, that you're not going to force them to do things again, and that you're not going to make them go back to school against their will. I think that's a really important part of it. Sometimes, sometimes parents think, say, well, we're, you know, you can come out of school, but only if you do these things. Otherwise, it's back yeah. to school. I think that makes life very difficult. Which we're just <laughs> repeating the same stuff at them there, aren't we? effectively we're just saying you've got to do this yeah and then I and then I think we need to help them re-establish their autonomy we need to help them re-establish their sense of themselves yeah. as a person who chooses to do things and that, that really is about finding the things that they enjoy and helping them do more of it whatever it is actually no it's not quite whatever it is as long as it's not self-destructive <laughs> but but it's it's that you know if what if what really makes them come alive is playing video games then it's about playing video games with them helping them expand that interest 
finding more complicated video games for them to play, finding other people for them to play video games with, whatever that interest is, helping them sort of starting with it. Because you're what you're doing, I think schools focus a lot on content and that learning is about content and facts and knowledge, and that's what's important. In self-directed education, it's about process. It continues to be about process. And if young people can start that process of learning with video games, then actually that is a process that they will be able to move to other things. You see it? So they're kind of experiencing, expanding from a point. You can start from any point and at that, and you can spread the learning out from that point. My 17-year-old, he loved to game when he was, I'm going to say sort of 12, 13, did a lot of gaming. Uh-huh. And uh, now he, he rarely games. He's still very interested in it. And sometimes he and he, all three of them get together and it's actually really lovely. Um, and they hook them together, but yeah. it happens sort of sporadically. But his gaming took him on to a love of economics, Romans, history. I can't describe the richness yeah. of it. All sorts of stuff. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, ancient Greek. It was just phenomenal, phenomenal. And most of it, and I look back, it was all sort of seated yeah. then. Really interesting. Yes. they bring It brings so many things. Yeah. So many video games have got amazing amazing narratives you know you it's narrative yeah. structure you're exploring but also my my son was very into video games and is now really into coding right so he writes his yeah. own video games oh, and that's been where he's gone with that yeah no I think but, but anything can be a spark I also think it gave him the opportunity to be really really good at something yes he, I think it, yeah. it, he became very good. It gave him a lot of belief in himself. So if he was feeling a bit down, then doing something he was very, very good at, <clears throat> and I'm sure we can all relate to that, um, it just made him feel good about himself, you know. Yeah, which is um, really important. That's that feeling of competence. And he's taken it yes. to other things. Competence, yeah. absolutely, being competent. Yeah, no, it's really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, yeah, th- something that I've done, which has been very helpful to me, has been to absolutely let go of the idea that there is an age by which yeah. you must have got this and that it is 18 or 16, <laughs> you know, and just think I'm hopefully raising people or partnering with people who will enjoy being themselves in the future and know what that means and they will know what makes them tick and they will know how to yeah. contain difficult emotions and they will simply know how to, you know, enjoy their lives. And and just think that's, that's really important all I can really yeah, hope for absolutely because it doesn't stop at 18 no and also it's very short-sighted isn't it this sort of pressure that we mm. have year by year they've got to be doing this stuff because it doesn't actually apply once you're over 18 it no longer mm. applies that you've got to have done everything by this point if you're you know I think part of our role as parents is to be providing second and third opportunities or fourth and fifth and sixth opportunities, but also letting pet, letting young people know that those opportunities are there. Because I think often yeah. what school does is say, this is your chance, this is your one thing, you must do really well at these exams at this age, or your life is over. And I think as parents, mm. we have to be saying, no, they got that wrong. No matter, you know, you need to find, find examples of people who didn't succeed at school, because there will be lots, there are loads of people who didn't succeed at school. And, you know, find examples of courses you can go and do when you don't have to have the GCSE, because there are actually lots of those as well. There are places you can go. Yeah, even without having passed your exams. Yeah, we found some remarkable places that are very, very open and 
and uh yeah and welcoming to to people and yes it's curious isn't it because any adult actually knows this mm. in fact my son he was at his judo class and uh he was talking about he wasn't quite sure what to do next year now he's sort of worked it out and he said every single person there they're all adults except for another guy his age offered their story about their lives oh. and all the different turns and things they done yes yes and how you just can't plan it out in advance basically yeah yes they need to hear that they need to hear that there are so many different ways to do things because they've been indoctrinated effectively for a long time to think this is the only way to do it this is the only way that's going you're going to be successful and it's really important for them to hear it isn't and it, I know you've been yeah. told that but it isn't and there are other ways and no matter what you know no matter whether you fail all your exams you don't take any exams people still go on their lives still go on and there's yeah. still hope really absolutely so Naomi I know you've got a new book coming out in June I have yes. yeah could you tell us a little bit about that Yes, so it's called A Different Way to Learn, Neurodiversity and Self-Directed Education. And it is particularly about the experience of families who they've all self-identified as having a neurodivergent child, or and many of them also self-identified themselves as being neurodivergent. So these were families, some of their children had diagnoses of diagnoses of autism, ADHD, dyslexia. Um, others didn't, but they'd identified themselves. And really what I was doing is I want I talk to lots of them and I've used their stories in the book so the book is about what self-directed education could look like for children whose development is far from the average is basically the way I think about it that's the way I think about neurodiversity that these are children whose development isn't close to what society is expecting at different stages so you know school is based on averages school is based on at this age you should be doing this at this age you should be doing this at this age you should be doing this and those who are close to the average that you know kind of can work for the further you are from the average the harder that is going to be for you and I think, you know, there are many reasons why children might be far from the average. But basically, when you bring a standardized system and you've got these children who are not standardized and who are doing things at different times and different places and different ways, you can get a really it, just a very unhelpful situation. And this was this was really started off by my experience of working with autistic adults as a clinical psychologist, where lots of them would bring up experiences of school. And many of them would say that what they learned at school was that there was something wrong with them. They were said so they had this pervasive feeling of something wrong with them. And it made me start thinking about self-directed education and they may, thinking maybe one of the most valuable things we can do for our young people and children is to go through life without this feeling that there's something wrong with them. You know, that we don't, their education isn't based all the time on you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be able to do more of this. Why can't you do more of this? Which can be the experience for so many young people. Yeah, which can only be incredibly detrimental in your life to only ever be reflected around you by what the lack in you is. It's like a deficit, isn't it? It's like you are not, you know, you should be doing this now, you should be doing this now, and you're not. And yeah. the only way that we really have to banish that is to put more pressure on you <laughs> to, you know, as if as if it's your lack of trying that makes you different. Well, it's interesting because um the majority of parents that I work with or and who I hear from have opted out of school because of their desire for their child to feel whole 
for their child to mm. feel good about themselves. Yes. Often quite yeah. young, sometimes getting older. Yeah. Often from a young age, they're realizing that their child is being held in a place that sees them as somehow broken. Not by a person, oh. but by a system. Yes, by a system. And it's yes. sort of inevitable, yeah. everything we've been talking about, that within that system, all that yeah. is obvious is the lack. Yes. Not all the other incredible skills or the and I think the beauty of self-directed education is that you, we they can be held in a space that recognizes who they are for their wholeness, for their all the things yes. they bring. I, I think that that, to me, has been the, the best part of it. Exactly. And I think, to me, that's what self-directed education is really about. And that's why it's not about content. It's about process. It's about this child learning and doing the things that are developmentally right for them at whatever stage they're at, without that being forced upon them. One of the things that I observed with my own children and also with the children around me. So one of the things that you learn when you're a self-directed or home educator is that there's an enormous amount of neurodivergency and autism in the in the home ed community. Um, and one of the things that really I noticed was that children were coming to different stages of development at different times. And this was a surprise to me as a developmental psychologist, because as a psychologist, you're 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 taught that. Children do these things at particular stages, particularly imaginative play. Yes, that they do imaginative play really from quite starting quite young, two, three, four, five. That's the sort of period for intense imaginative play. And of course, for lots of children, it is. And that parents at that stage, they kind of expect it. You know, we construct home corners in our houses and we school, even schools have home corners and dressing up boxes and all these things to encourage the stage of imaginative play for young children. In fact, one of the diagnostic criteria for autism is that children don't necessarily do that kind of imaginative play at the time when other children do imaginative play. But what I noticed from watching my children and other children was that a lot of those children who didn't engage in imaginative play at the time when most other children were, well, actually they engaged in different kinds of imaginative play, but they often came to it later. So, and it was often different then. So I would see like people, parents would tell me, and I would see it myself that, say eight and nine-year-olds who had never been really interested in role play, for example, would suddenly become interested in role play, but it would be all about Minecraft typically, <laughs> or, the, or plants versus zombies, or their the video games that they were playing. They would bring that into the world and they would start this kind of role, this imaginative play. And suddenly it would be about, can we go to the park and play real life Minecraft? You know, we'd all be picking at, doing our pickaxes and building houses. And I was like, this is so interesting because if they were at school, this wouldn't really be happening because by the time you get to eight or nine at school, imaginative play has been devalued. It's no longer, you know, school is no longer set up for imaginative play. Video games are quite devalued as well. You know, they're not seen as something that we nurture and encourage children to do at this age, usually. It's more something that parents are worried about limiting and um, stopping their children from doing. And so what if these children are going through this developmental stage here and, you, and they're only doing it because they're out of school and because they're being self-directed. That if they're in school, they're not able to do that. And we, you know, psychologists talk a lot about how important imaginative play is and how much children learn through their imaginative play. What if we're actually stopping children 
some children from doing imaginative play at the stage that they need to do it because we've got this very rigid system that says by the time you're eight or nine you should no longer be playing imaginatively really you should be spending most of your time reading and writing and doing structured activities and sitting at a desk what if actually that does real harm to some children because I think that's where my call that's where my desire to write the book came from that if we're really to embrace the idea of neurodiversity which I think is the idea that everyone is different and that everyone develops at different rates and develops different things skills in different ways then we have to have an education system which flexes around the child rather than having a system which says you've got to meet these expectations yeah absolutely yeah it's a it's a huge difference not for them to not be at school and to actually go at their own speed and with different age children as well and well, I noticed that from my own experience at school, year groups seemed kind of sacrosanct at school. Like it was, I had no friends who were outside my year group. You know, it was like they immediately seemed, it was weird because I'm an October birthday. So, you know, the, the young, the children in the, the year ahead could have only, often maybe only a couple of months younger than me. I'm sorry. I mean, you know what I mean? Ahead. Yes, I do mean that. The, the, the ones above could be, the ones above would only be a couple of months older than me. That's right. That's what I mean. Um, but yet they seemed like they must be in this different world because they were a year ahead. Um, and I found that my children do not have that at all because they have never been put into year groups. So they don't have that concept that this is the this is the group with whom I will be friends. Yeah. But also this is the group against whom I will compare myself. Right. You know, there's a kind of very strict age based comparison, isn't there? That Because you're all being made to do the same thing. So if you're all made to do the same thing. You're all going to learn the same thing. And of course, that doesn't happen for self-directed kids. They're not they're not all doing the same thing. So why would they compare each other themselves against everyone doing the same thing? Yeah. I was just thinking, my middle son, who's now 15, nearly 16, people always asking, what year are you in? Yes. So he says 2023, same as you. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Because we're always like, oh, I don't know, what year? Can't are you? remember what year you're in. No, I agree. That was when it I knew my takes... de-schooling had really set in when I could no longer remember what school year my children would be. <laughs> I had to work it out. Yeah. yeah, lovely. You just mentioned the word there, de-schooling. Where to start? Ooh, tips for de-schooling. So basically, start with yourself. Go and read some books. Go and, you know, challenge your thinking about what you think your child should be doing at particular ages. And then look for the things that bring them that bring them alive, that make them feel alive. Look for the sparks. Love it. And try and join with them and do more of those things. So even if they're things that you yourself may not be that interested in, it's the joy that you're looking for. It's the, the gripe and the creativity that you're the curiosity that you're looking for. And then it's doing that with them. I love it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, so just watch your child. What brings them alive? What brings your child alive? Beautiful. Yeah, and don't forget the things that bring you alive as well. Now, that's really important too. Yes, and if yeah. they're, exactly. And if they're in a state, which some children are when they come out of school, where nothing really seems to bring them alive, that they've really gone into a stage of just of just shut down for a bit, that can be part of the process for some young people. Yeah. And I think that that's a point where it is important to do the things that get you alive, but also to keep on bringing things into their life, not pressuring them to do them, but mm. keeping on showing them that you're there and even, you know, finding just tiny things that you can do together that might, you know, just nice 
things to put in the bath or just things that make them feel cared for and that show that, that you're there you're there with them yeah beautiful oh thank you so much Naomi it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to thank you thank you Esther it's been yeah. great to talk and look forward to your book thank you thank you well much love to you and your family and chat bye, to you. bye. Yeah.